Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Natavati and John Damaris. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, John Damaris, and today, as always, we are on the Frontline Gaming Network, which hopefully you found us there, but if you didn't for some reason and you found us in another way, you need to go check it out because there's fantastic podcasts on that network, including Chapter Tactics and Signals from the Frontline. Make, make sure you guys go to Frontline Gaming and uh, give, us, give us a listen. So anyway, today we're here to talk about Tyranids. I know you guys are all thinking, what the heck, Tyranids? I thought Tyranids were dead, but no. We found a player who's actually doing pretty well with them in online leagues. Uh, he's a good friend of mine who I used to play War Machine with. We call him Trevi the Not-So-Great, but his actual nickname is Trevi the Great. And uh, he's, been, he's been playing war games for a long time, even so far as making his own war game, which we'll ask him about on a different interview. So Trevi, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing and, uh, and where you're at. Oh, and I forgot to introduce Nick, so let me do that really quick. Of course, Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's my bad. We changed up the way we're doing it this week, right? Because this is a guest that I know, so I'm introducing them. But Nick Natavati doesn't really need an introduction. He's one of the best players in 40K, uh, 40K history, I'll even say, and blow his head up even more because I like doing that. And uh, he's here. He's going to be here to help us break down uh, some of the deep concepts that we go with this list. So, okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. Trevi, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, kind of talk about a little bit about what you're doing, and then we'll get into your list. Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, like John said, my name's Trevi, and I'm playing a whole bunch of Tyranids, mostly online on Tabletop Simulator, since the world is currently on fire and we are in the midst of an apocalypse. Uh, but fortunately, Tabletop Simulator is there to keep my 40K addiction live and sated. So I've been grinding a ton of games with Tyranids, and it's been super fun. Awesome, Trevi. So why don't you – actually, before we get into that, I want to just take a quick second and talk about Tabletop Simulator. Uh, a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, haven't used it. I'm very, very new at it. I played three games total. Um, how different is Tabletop Simulator from Real Life 40K, and how hard is it to learn and get into so it's basically not that much different at all. Um, it, it, it basically does what it says on the tin. It just simulates a tabletop and the mods that allow, you know, TTS 40K to work just make a bunch of models for you to play around on. So it's basically exactly like playing a normal game of 40K, except instead of using your hands to move your models around, you're going to use, you know, a mouse and a, a keyboard. Uh, that said, some things are a little easier. It's easier to play more models on the put more models on the table, which is good because I'm playing Tyranids. So, um, you know, you can drag select your guys like you're playing an RTS and <laughs> shuffle them all around at the same time. So uh, there is a couple a couple time savers in there for sure. That's cool. Now I don't want to derail the conversation and talk about TTS all the time, but in the few games I've played, uh, I found it difficult to like measure exactly. You know, like every model, it's a pain. Like I can do it way faster with my hands than I can on the computer. But I'm also not the most adverse with computers. You know, I don't. Anyone who knows me knows I suck at technology, and I don't really play many video games. So I mean, the saying you suck at technology, perfect. let's be honest, is is an understatement of epic proportions. Nick. Thanks, so. John. <laughs> I apologize, but, right, yeah, but for someone like me, I, I've struggled with it. Do you have any tips for players who are like me trying to get into it? Um, for 
Okay, when you said it's easier to play a bunch of models, I yeah. my head, I could not believe you just said that. And when I try to play a bunch of models, I end up throwing my hormigons across the map, literally, or clumping up my gene stealers and having them all just fall down. I like that doesn't happen in real life. So what can I do? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, don't right click when you pick up your guys uh, because that makes them all clump up. So that's a number one tip right there. Um, but also, you can do things like you can copy and paste your models. So if you're um, you know, if you're especially trying to proxy some measurements out to make sure you're, uh, you know, you're, you're pre-measuring correctly, or you just want to, uh, you know, be able to move them, uh, uh, you know, accurate distance, you can, for example, you can mark the distance that you want to move, and then you can just copy and paste your whole unit to make sure that that measurement is correct. It is a little bit clunkier than real life in some respects. Uh, like you mentioned, like you can only effectively measure one, um, distance at a time. Uh, so things like aura abilities and stuff take a little bit of work to get right. But uh, there are some tools that you can download from the Steam Workshop. Uh, for example, there are some aura markers that you can use to make it a little easier to, um, you know, measure out your deep strike uh, nine inch bubble and, uh, you know, six inch auras from per uh, specific models and things like that uh, that are effect effectively just sort of physical objects that you will use on the table that will mark a, a, an area of the table uh, to make it a little easier for you. All right. Well, thanks for that. Hopefully you guys can check it out. We have an Art of War Tabletop Simulator League going on for our clients here in the War Room. And then on top of that, we have some really cool Tabletop Simulator stuff that, unfortunately, I can't talk about just yet. But very soon, you guys will hear all about it. It's really exciting. So if you haven't checked out Tabletop Simulator, at least during this pandemic, I highly recommend at least getting to grips with it but let's talk about what you're actually here to talk about trevi yeah. and that is Do you guys scary. mind if i plug my tabletop simulator stuff Fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> so i run a youtube channel tactical tortoise uh, which does a lot of 40k video content and we've started the tactical tortoise tabletop simulator tournament series uh also known as the t5s2 series and that is a bunch of free 40k tournaments that you can join on tabletop simulator uh, if you go over to the tactical tortoise youtube channel there's actually a video right up on the front page that you can watch and get all the information but basically you just post in our discord that you want to join a pod and we, we start two to three pods a week and each pod is a four-round itc tournament and so we're just constantly getting games of 40k and online that's awesome and you know no one is going to complain about playing 40k you know online or in real life 40k is 40k we all love it that's why we're here so now that tiered list what is it from top to bottom if you were to write it out for me? Sure. So it's a pretty standard double battalion. I find that Tyranids make battalions pretty well because they have a lot of power kind of leveraged in their troops choices and their HQs. So you, it's pretty, you kind of effortlessly build double battalion lists with Tyranids. Uh, and this one is mixed high fleet. So it has uh, two different, uh, each, high, each battalion is of a different high fleet. Um, the, the selections will not surprise anyone uh, who's familiar with Tyranid rules. One is High Fleet Kraken, which makes all your stuff super fast. And in that battalion is uh, three units of Gene Stealers, two of 20, and one of 18, as well as a, the Swarm Lord to double move uh, them or himself around really fast, a Neurothrope, as well as a Maliceptor. Uh, in the second battalion, it's a High Fleet Cronus battalion, so they're good at shooting. And that has two Neurothropes as the HQ choices, three units of three Ripper Swarms to fill out the troops, as well as a unit of five Hive Guard and two Exocrines. All right. So a lot of really normal stuff here, and then a lot of a few unorthodox things. A um, lot to unpack, though, because uh, subtle changes make big differences in how a list functions. Seems like you're just doing like this standard crack and crack in Swarmlord Steelers nonsense with some chrono shooting. That makes sense. Um, 
One of the really interesting things that I would love to touch on is your Maliceptor choice. I think this is a unit in Tyranids that most people don't even know exists, unless you're actually a Tyranid player, in which case you probably don't even know what it does because you read it when the Codex came out and then forgot that it existed. So <laughs> it's got a strat in Psychic Awakening that makes it, it puts it on the radar. Um, do you want to break down what that strat is and how you've experienced the Maliceptor, what you think I find it? I'm yeah. definitely curious how to try one yet. Absolutely. So the stratagem that we're talking about right now, and the reason that the, the only reason I think you'd ever put a maliceptor in your list uh, is called encephalic diffusion. It's a two CP strat you use at the start of your opponent's shooting phase. And when you do, uh, it creates a six inch aura around the maliceptor that gives any tyranid unit inside it, uh, any ranged attacks targeting them for that phase will suffer minus one strength. Uh, unlike most other tyranid auras like synapse or their spore clouds, uh, it's not racist, so it actually... Uh, it actually works regardless of your high fleet? Yeah, yeah. it actually just only affects here to do that. So, uh, you don't have to be in the same high fleet. All right, that's really good. Um, so minus one strength aura for incoming shooting. Um, let's, let's just talk about the general applications of why that's good. A lot of times that's... It's like a ghetto plus one to wound. Because obviously against like strength five and or strength six against your toughness four stealers, you're gonna strength yeah, five and toughness right? difference. But the vast majority of guns out there are strength four or something like that, where knocking them down and not just gonna make wound stealers on fives. Or since it works apparently on your chrono stuff too, the strength eight and nine guns that you'd use to shoot exocrines go down to strength seven slash eight, which is a wound bracketing thing for them. Do you find that it's worth it? Just generally, because the Maliceptor is like what 160 points off memory and mm -hmm. strats two CP, and this guy doesn't do anything else. Like he casts smite. <laughs> that's, that's literally all he does. He casts That's smite. basically it. Um, yeah, so it, it is. It is a big. It's a hefty expense for sure. And I think if you're going to put a Maliceptor in your tyranny list, you kind of have to. You have to. You have to think about it real hard before you do it, and you have to build the entire list around him. Um, one of the things that this list has is all of its threatening units. Uh, especially the Jane Sailors and the Exocrines have an even toughness value. And that sounds really weird, but that actually uh, sort of maximizes the um, the effectiveness of that uh, minus one strength. Because, what do you mean by that? So it turns, uh, for example, it turns strength eight shooting down to strength seven, uh, which is a break point for both toughness eight and toughness four. So if it's shooting at a gene sailor, it goes from wounding on twos to wounding on threes. And if it's shooting at an extra credit, it goes from wounding on uh, fours to wounding on uh, fives. So you, you have to sort of consider the models in your list that way and whether the shooting that you're seeing in the meta is actually going to be affected by minus one strength. For example, if you're going to put this guy with a bunch of termagants and you're being shot at by strength five weaponry, his ability does literally nothing. It's like you, you might as well have just taken anything else in that slot. Um, but because there are gene stealers in there instead, any strength five shooting, which is pretty common, that's like, uh, you know, seeker missiles, that's gallon cannons, that's heavy bolters. There's a lot of strength five, you know, random anti-infantry stuff out there. Uh, that minus one uh, strength is going to actually impact on both the toughness eight and the toughness four uh, on all your big threatening models. I also think it's worth pointing out is there's a ton of strength for shooting for horde type stuff. When you have 60 stealers, like people want to shoot them with bolt guns or whatever, and moving from four plus to wound to five plus to wound is big game, right? Because those stealers, basically, the longer they last, the because of Swarm Lord and all his tricks, which we'll get into, I'm sure, um, the more sort of control board control you have over the game, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the gene stealers, I mean, when as soon as you put gene stealers on the table, you just assume that they're going to die. You know, your opponent's going to kill them at some point in the game. I don't know if I've ever actually ended a game with any gene stealers left on the table, but the more bullets that they take to kill, that's the, you know, the more gene stealers that you have, you know, left for that subsequent turn and uh, the, the more work that your opponent has to do to actually get rid of them. Uh, then as long as those guys are still on the table, they're taking up board space, they're grabbing new objectives, and they're forcing their opponent to sit their whole game in their deployment zone and you know twiddle their thumbs around while you score recon a bunch of times. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting, though, that you you identified the meta as having a lot of strength 5 shooting, where, again, going down to strength 4 doesn't make a difference to your guns. But like John said, the, the meta has tons of strength 4, bolter fire, things like that. The The average weapon of like a guard army is strength 3, so it's very useful there. Um I figured a horde of guns would actually be one of the best places to put a mouse after because it just it, it's so uh, kind of force multiplicative, like exponentially so on so many models. Obviously, you're using it on nice brackets like Strength Eight, which is a very strong weapon. Like most people look at Strength Eight guns, like this is adequate. This can move knights on fours, move most vehicles on threes. This is where I want to be. And now you're making that toughness. Uh, making that strength seven not where you want to be. So I love that aspect for the exocrines and whatnot. But you really don't find that much value in the gaunts? Uh, so the, the if we're going to talk about the gaunts right, right now, the, the thing that I find with if you're trying to spam gaunts is that um, unlike the gene stealers, like they don't they don't do any work. Uh, so your opponent typically isn't that scared of them. Uh, so, that, you know, they can wrap and trap as much as they want. But in a lot of factions, they're going to be able to kill 30 Gants in melee. Like, that's not really much of a problem. Um, so, and I think even with, you know, minus one to wound on a lot of bolters and things, they're going to be able to take out enough that they can kind of sandpaper the front of your army off the table. Whereas uh, a hardier unit like Gene Stealers, while they're, you know, vastly more expensive, um, once they actually get into melee, they're, they're going to deal damage and they're going to be that much harder for your opponent to kill individually. So, um, I, after playing Gantz a couple of times, I, I found that like I was having a lot of trouble, you know, scoring kills uh, and, and my opponent was very easily able to like pick up a kill and kill more, um, in ITC objectives. And I would, you know, I would be able to take table objectives and, uh, grab maneuver secondaries. But as the game went on, I would, you know, sort of lose slowly losing the attrition battle until my opponent was able to come back. Whereas with a more offensive unit, you can, um, you know, you can actually keep up the, you know, that, that trade, that tit for tat, uh, with a shooting army. I do think it's worth mentioning that Gaunt's is a very different list than what Trevi's bringing to the table today. Like Gaunt's is a board control sort of exists there kind of list and, and where 60 gene sealers can do that. You can also be very aggressive and kill stuff with yep. uh, Trevi's list, right? So I think that's more the design philosophy than we've seen for a lot of other Tyranid builds lately, right? Kind of interestingly as well, is if you're playing like the Gantt carpet style of list, one of the strengths of that list is that it removes your opponent's um, you know, anti-tank weaponry from being effective at all, right? Because all you're bringing is like 300 dudes. But if you have this big like toughness seven idiot sitting in the middle of the like the table, you know, suddenly like these basilisks are like, hey, we got something to do, you know. <laughs> and these like tank commanders are you know high fiving in the back. Um, For sure, yeah. The, I, one of the strengths of the Maliceptor is that he isn't very easy to kill, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Uh, so you do want him to, to sort of be taken to ta table space alongside the Gene Stealers and moving up the table. Um, and that puts him in threat range. He's not like a Malanthrope where he's hard, you know, hard to shoot at and you can hide it pretty easily uh, because you know he has 160 points of like basically do nothing if he's not running up the, up the board. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. It gives a target to a horde army, where otherwise it wouldn't for like the anti-tank guns. That's that's great. Um, 
So with, what's your philosophy on using this stratagem? Because it's one that I just don't think anyone's really tried. Um, <laughs> do you pop it every turn? Just I'm playing 12 CP down. Do you pop it just the beginning turns while you still have Steelers running around? Um, what, what's your thought process on this thing? Yeah, so uh, turn, it, it's very, um, I, I definitely don't plan to use it every turn. Um, and so it's, it's a calculation that you have to do at the start of each shooting phase. Uh, you know, in some situations, if your opponent doesn't have a lot of indirect fire, uh, you know, you can just forego it entirely if you're able to hide the majority of your army and you don't really care that much. Um, or, you know, if your opponent is is backed up enough that they aren't going to be able to bring most of their, you know, heavy hitters to bear on that turn, you can you can take a turn off. So playing defensively and, and you know, trying to stay out of line of sight, that's something that if you're playing Tyranids, you know, you, <laughs> you know, you got to do that all the time anyway, because uh, your stuff's going to die regardless. Um, but it does also, you know, sort of save you the, the, the requirement to spend those two CP. Uh, usually if I'm defending typically, uh, first turn, uh, you know, bottom of one, I'll pop it because that's when your opponent has the most guns on the table. Um, and otherwise, uh, I expect to use it rounds one and two, because those are the rounds where the gene stealers are going to be, uh, you know, sort of clouding out alongside the Maliceptor and taking table space in the center. Uh, and then immediately after that, either my army spread out enough or hopefully I've engaged enough of my opponent's guns that they aren't going to be able to shoot too much back into into the rest of my army. Yeah, gotcha. So you're just trying to get it, get as many stealers as you can to connect with your opponent fast. And after that, who cares? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the gene stealers, I'm, it's nice when they do a bunch of damage to your opponent. But honestly, uh, the gene stealers are kind of more threatening than they are uh, actually dangerous. Uh, people know that they have a ridiculous threat range and know that it, they have the potential of doing a bunch of damage if you walk into that threat range. Uh, and so the, the presence of the gene stealers just forces your opponent back. And you can take that to take the center of the board and then use that Maliceptor stratagem to keep them alive a little bit longer. So it's it's almost a mechanism for board control on your list. Yeah, 100% for sure. Very interesting. So that brings me kind of to my next question overall, which is great. Um, I play a lot of Tyranids, and my Tyranid armies are, look similar in that, you know, there's Kraken, and there's Steelers, you just take that. I have Hive Guard, I have one Exocrine in my latest version. Uh, I am looking at going to more Exocrines, though, so we'll touch on that as well. Um, but I have a lot more Gaunts than you. I have, like, three large-ish units of Gaunts, like mid-20s, low, like, or high-20s, that kind of size. And I use those to do board control for me. Now, obviously, this is in place of your second Exocrine and your Malanthrope, or sorry, your, your Malaceptor. But... Um, I find those bodies allow me to control a table, get my maneuver secondaries, get my bonus point without having to sacrifice a real threat every turn, like my like 20 gene stealers. Do you find without having much chaff that you're missing that tool? Um, honestly, like not so much. Uh, I did play a couple different versions of a similar list. Uh, I think it sounds like we played very similar list for a while, um, where I had, you know, between, uh, 30 and 60 Gantz and, you know, different configurations. And I found, um, that a lot of times they would, you know, they, it was good to grab the, the, the board control secondaries, but a lot of times they would just immediately also give up a kill. Um, and that, so you were basically just trading points at that point. Like they were really easy fodder for, you know, Reaper kill, kill more. Um, and I wasn't actually gaining any momentum from them because my opponent was able to use their bodies, you know, against me effectively. Sure, um, yeah. and the gains themselves, like aren't, they don't, they don't do any damage. Like they're not going to yeah. kill a unit. 
Uh, they're just going to run around. Aeolus doesn't actually give up Max Reaper, really. That's interesting. Uh, it, this one does, uh, but you do you are committing to killing all of the Ripper Swarms and all of the Gene Stealers. Basically. Right, and I don't really count the Rippers because they can de-strike in the corner and just yeah, kind of... Sure. Like, at that point, you're getting tabled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's an interesting point. Where I, I just write in four points for my opponent when they choose Reaper for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, let's this, count how many models I kill. Like, let's not. Let's this just... list does give up... Uh, it, it max gives up Max Reaper, potentially, and Max Big Game, uh, but obviously... It's very rare that it gives up both of those because, like you said, like you have, I have to be losing so badly <laughs> to give up both of those. Yeah, interesting. So I also find like with my Gaunt version, I take secondaries like Sappers. I'm like the only army in the game that can take Sappers because what else are Thirty Gaunts going to do besides double move with Swarm Lord onto multiple objectives and score two points while doing it while getting the bonus point? Also, you could do that with Steelers, but they're not attacking. So, what kind of secondaries do you normally go for with this type of list? So I am usually, I'm almost always picking recon. Uh, I think that's just as a tyranny player, you sort of have to, you know, uh, just resign yourself to the fate that you have recon stapled in every game. Um, there's usually one kill secondary that's pretty, re, uh, you know, reliable based on your opponent's list. Uh, and then the third one is uh, going to be up for grabs. I find behind enemy lines is usually pretty solid because you have those ripper swarms. And especially yeah. in... Um, spread out deployments, so you think like Frontline Assault and Dawn of War, uh, where your opponent is incentivized to castle up so that their Gene Stealers don't like absolutely run roughshod across their entire line. You could just put a Ripper Swarm or two or three uh, and get all the doubles in you know a corner on turn two and just start racking up those points really easily. Yeah, and I'm, those are that's fantastic use of rippers. I use uh, rippers in my Gene Stealer cult stuff in my version. I have a small like just for show Gene Stealer cult battalion to get Vect in there and stuff. I notice you have kind of foregone the Gene Stealer cult battalion. Um, what's your? Is that for points or is that a personal choice or is there like you don't think it's worth it? Yeah, it's it's like one hundred percent a personal choice. Um, I don't I don't really like their models, so I never really got into them. Uh, it's definitely and it, and you know for that reason, it's not something that I've really play tested that much. It's definitely I can I can recognize that it's very powerful, and at some point I'm gonna you know make the switch to forces instead of pure tyranids. Um, but I'm. I'm just not ready for you know to get to that stage in our relationship know, yet. We, we can all be scrubs for a, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a highlight for those of you guys listening. Why the Gene Circle Battalion is so awesome for Tyrants. One, you get a like five units minimum that deep strike, so that's just all the behind enemy lines and recons you could ever ask for. And then two, they have lying in wait as well as a stratagem, which I've used to tremendous effect to move block armies, to score bonus points, to just. I hold more when I have no business doing huge point swings by just spending two CP on that stuff. And then uh, additionally, you get amazing utility from the form of blips to block some Raven Guard shenanigans, which we'll talk about in the next episode. And you have access to plans for plan for generations in the making, um, which is essentially Gene Stealer Cult versions of Vect, which you don't use every game, but when you need it, you need it, you know, that kind of thing. Um okay, cool. So let's talk about your lack of broodlord. This this one offends me because I love my broodlord. <laughs> Why is there no broodlord? Like you have a neurothrope, you're, you're 25 points off. Cut a gene stealer. I don't care. What are you doing? <laughs> so I yeah, I um I do like broodlords, but 
I will say I don't love Broodlords. And the first time I, I put this list together, the first iteration of this list, uh, I was actually just, I was shaving things to fit the bare bones inside 2,000 points. Um, it was shocking to me that the first iteration had three Exocrines instead of the Maliceptor. And it was uh, a, a total shock to me when I put it in my Battlescribe that it all, that the, the Exocrines and the Hive Guard and the Triple Gene Stealers all fit together. But it did require me to, you know, I, I have a five man unit of Hive Guard instead of six. I have 18 G Steelers, what are the units instead of, uh, instead of the full 20? Um, stuff like that, that I was already kind of making conce- concessions. And uh, the first version had a, a Broodlord, but I ended up dropping it down to a Neurothrope uh, just for points. Um, Interesting. One I of the. Go ahead. Two dealers, like 24 points for that for two Steelers versus 25 for the upgrade from the Neurothrope to Broodlord. You don't find that the plus one to hit aura plus the utility of the actual assault is better than the Neurothrope? So, I've, in my experience, uh, Broodlords just tend to be fairly swingy, um, and relying on them to deal damage in Assault, is, I mean, they're good, don't get me wrong, but uh, they they sort of need to be in there with some other stuff. Um, yeah, they're, they're no Smash Captains, yeah, let's be clear. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah, they're not super solos that can go, you know, hero hammer on your opponent's army. Um, the plus one to hit is nice to have, and it's, it's especially nice to have in... Uh, if you're you're sort of playing kind of a horde mirror where your opponent is equally as aggressive as you are, uh, I think the plus one to hit is actually like enormous in that situation. It, it's huge versus things like orcs because especially right. if it's the difference between killing twenty eight orcs and getting <laughs> yeah. five or killing thirty, yeah. you know. Yeah, for I sure. Um, the I I I found that in, those matchups aren't my hardest ones. So I don't feel like I need to make concessions to those. Whereas playing into, um, you know, things like gun lines and, uh, you know, like we said, the Raven guard earlier and, and these, you know, these sort of big heavy hitter metalists that can really reach out and touch you from across the table. The gene stealers have to extend so far forward in order to, uh, engage those armies to stop them from shooting at me that they leave the broodlord behind like every time, like, um, unless you're like metabolic overdriving that guy all up the table, um, and he's bleeding UCPs. It's not like you're just, he, he's just like lives in your deployment zone most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> he's so much slower than the unit that's getting pumped up. That's fair. And this this is a kind of a Tyranid paradox for those of you who don't know. It's basically Tyranids are like a spectrum. The more and more you tech for your Raven Guard and your Grey Knight matchups and your town matchups, those shooty armies, the worse and worse like your Horde matchups get. And verse, vice versa, the better you tech for like your other assault army type thing like World Eaters or Orcs. The worse and worse your town matchup is going to get. It's, it is very much a balancing act on the spectrum. There. <laughs> I made the mistake of going to a GT in January, uh, playing a an army that I had tech to fight, like a Space Marine gunline. And in round two, I got uh, um, matched up with a Tyranid mirror match, uh, where my opponent was playing a previous version of my list that was much better against Tyranids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it felt real bad. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, so let's talk about your Kronos detachment real quick. You have, uh, you have two Exegrins and a unit of five Hive Guard. Now, uh, I personally run a unit of six Hive Guard and one Exegrin. I want to go to more Exegrins. How have you been finding balancing multiple Exegrins? Obviously, they have the Stratagem, which kind of makes them useful now. So it allows one Exegrin to move and fire and count as stationary. But if they move, they're terrible. Not only do you have the minus one for moving because they're heavy weapons, they also don't get plus one to hit because they count as moving. And they fire half as many shots. And so they don't reroll shots. their ones to hit. Uh, <laughs> it's just, just atrocious. Yeah. They just suck. Okay, so do you find with two, you often have one that's you know getting that strat and becoming useful, and then one that just sucks? Or like how does that balance out for you? 
Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that the first iteration of the list had three exocrines. Um, and uh, depending on how much I love the Maliceptor, uh, you know, a, a couple, you know, a, a couple more testing cycles in, um, he might turn back into an exocrine. I do think that exocrines sort of have to hit a critical mass on the table to be very effective. Uh, I found that with one, you can. Like it's 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 good to be efficient with the stratagem, but it, this, that guy also eats like a he just draws a ton of fire immediately because people know how dangerous those things are. Um, with with two or three, a lot of times you can um, you can kind of overload the table with exocrines, uh, and you can. It sounds weird, but you, you sort of you play your gun line kind of aggressively, and you spread out your fire base, you know, all the way across the the map. So it's a, it's difficult for your opponent to bring all of their shots to bear on a single exocrine. Um, and B it's hard for them to, uh, to actually hide from them, which is the other big issue that exocrines have. They aren't that fast. They're only uh, move six and a 36 inch range isn't that great. So a lot of times your opponent can, can, can kind of kite an exocrine if you just have one. Um, whereas two, you can deploy them on the flanks and you can, uh, you know, sort of move around LOS blocking pieces of terrain, uh, to try to get good lines of sight. And then typically, if your opponent's trying to escape from one exocrine, uh, not to mention all the gene stealers that are sitting in the middle of the table, uh, they will often, they won't be able to escape, you know, with their entire army, the range of the second one. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I was, how I envisioned using them, is yeah. uh, just kind of spread out through your deployment zone. They can hide from one, they can't hide from the other, and uh, you can always move, like one will just have one, it's like, because you're spreading out, it's, it's two directions you're going outside from the other one, can move around, use the strat as he needs to. Yes, yeah, so it, I've been finding that typically two of them will have good shots in any one time if you're bringing three, uh, and if you have two, then uh, you, you probably... Uh, both you know both of them have the ability to to, to take shots uh, every turn one of them will usually have to move to get that so you get the stratagem on one of them the other one i mean he killed some chaff or something he blows up some space marine scouts or some intercessors and just continues like to pile on kills um and then if you have another one a lot of times they're advancing and they're just running and they're hiding and they're um they're trying to you know set up for the next turn and you kind of leapfrog the exocrines over each other uh, with just two, it's a little bit harder to do that, but you can basically effectively do the same thing, and you can have one shooting and one moving at any one time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, over to the Hive Guard, I have probably the worst unit of Hive Guard in the history of all Hive Guard. <laughs> like my, my Hive Guard consistently are like two man shield drone unit. No, thank you. We can't get that kill. Like ten guardsmen. We're not even to make cause on morale check. Like it's just it's laughable how bad my hive guard are. I'm assuming you have better results with your hive guard, or do you also find they they like are kind of like lackluster in the current meta uh, as far as other people's durabilities go? So I think they're important for two reasons. They are a little swingy. Um, they're not many shots a piece, and then like D three damage just sometimes like bites you in the butt. You're just like, oh great, I rolled all ones, like sick. I guess you take four. Cool. Um, that said, it can also you know be the other go the other way, and they can just like one shot tanks like super easy. Um, but I think uh, they're important for two reasons. One is the indirect fire. Uh, as like we talked about, the exocrines are super easy to hide from. Uh, they're you know they're slow and they're kind of short ranged, and your opponent's gonna like you know hide uh, some centurions in an L, and you're like, well, those guys get to live forever. Um, but the hive guard force your opponent out of those situations where they're literally. They're, you know, they can't hide in L's because uh, they'll get shot by Hive Guard and charged by Gene Stealers, and they can't really 
you know, escape from that uh, and stay away from the elves because then they'll get lit up by exocrines. Um, playing without the indirect fire shots is a real big downside when you if you drop Hiveguard out of your list. Uh, and then the other thing that they give you is uh, access to strength eight, which is uh, strength eight and above is a little tough to get to in pure Tyranids. Um, so having Hiveguard be able to, you know, wound knights on fours and things like that is a pretty big deal. Uh, especially since you can use single-minded annihilation to fire that unit twice. So that's honestly where most of my CPs in this list go. Uh, you know, the Maliceptor notwithstanding, the Hive Guard are just going to double shoot every time I can get a good target on them. And they're just going to, you know, they, they're going to start picking off wounds off, uh, you know, big knights. They're going to start forcing my opponent to move out from, uh, you know, LOS blocking train. And they're just going to, you know, start putting pressure on them. Interesting. I, I personally loathe double shooting my half guard, and I have a unit of six, um, mostly because mine suck, and I know that. But, <laughs> uh, do you do you really want to try to find points with that six one if you are going to double shoot? And also, on to the point of double shooting half guard, you have 60 gene stealers. Like, don't they care a lot about CP to like fight twice, overrun, double their advance rolls, all kind of good stuff? Like, how are you able to spend so much on the half guard? Um, so I, I kind of touched on it before, but one of the reasons that gene stealers are so scary is because they're so scary and people, people will naturally uh, sort of play into the gene stealers more than they do the hive guard. Uh, so they'll make it so, you know, gene stealers, uh, they'll stay outside of your threat range. They'll make your charges really difficult. They'll, uh, you know, represent really powerful overwatch. Uh, if you're going to charge into a juicy unit with gene stealers, um, or they'll just, you know, sort of corner themselves and make a big castle and make it impossible for the gene stealers to do that much damage. Uh, so the gene stealers are more threatening than they are like damage dealing. And it's, I'm absolutely, if they get in and can get into some juicy targets and can start, you know, you know, mixing it up, I'm absolutely going to blow all my CP double fighting with gene stealers and overrunning around and, you know, doing all the, the cool Tyranid stuff. But it's important in Tyranids that you don't like, you assume that your opponent's going to be able to play around that pretty well. Um, and having a, a ranged unit in the list, especially Hive Guard, I think they're the best target for single-minded annihilation. Um, having that in the list so that you can play in both phases is very important. Gotcha. That makes sense. So to that uh, line of thinking, I guess, um, and this brings me to a point I wanted to ask for a while, but I can do it a lot better now. Um, I was going to say, gene stealers just aren't what they used to be. Um, people are well aware of their shenanigans and armies are just tougher than they used to be like durability has gone up across the game over the course of years so um a lot of players typically run swarmy in two units as large stealers like 40 stealers is kind of the standard and for the same reason you just identified oftentimes your opponent won't let you really get off a huge gene stealer multi-assault into all their characters and shining spheres and stuff it's just unrealistic if the opponent knows what they're doing um but by taking 40 you still have that ability to threaten them you can still be like if, if you don't screen and castle up i will just kill you with these stealers so you've gone further you've taken 60 do you find that 60 is functionally different than 40 because a lot of players i know myself included think it's sometimes you want that last unit but a lot of times 40 gets this job done because you're just scaring your opponent with them right uh, so what I found, uh, first of all, um, like you said before, you know, when we're talking about the term against having bodies on the table is always a good thing. Um, having, you know, sort of a unit in reserve almost to sit in your back line and do some screening. Um, it doesn't really matter if they're far away because you're playing high fleet Kraken. So your gene stealers have like effectively infinite movement and they can be anywhere on the table anytime you want. Um, so you can keep them relatively safe, uh, and use them in the late game. 
Uh, that's when Gene Steelers like really super duper go off is like turns four through six. If you still have a 20 man unit of Gene Steelers on the board, uh, you can you can typically run that board if you know if the rest of your army hasn't uh, has yeah, been able to deal enough. Strong, the screening is kind of depleted, and he's got to spread himself a right thin. Twenty yeah. Steelers to go kill the final blow. Right, they're gonna they're gonna get in. They're gonna get in on your characters. You're gonna start regenerating CP. You're you know they're gonna start picking up all of their uh, you know their um, objective holding units and their backline artillery and stuff like that. Um, that's the position where I want to be is with a 20 man or unit of gene stealers towards the end of the game. And what I found is that a lot of times you're, you're going to deliver one unit, like a hundred percent, your, your opponent will probably not be able to stop you, um, getting them into melee on the, on turn one or turn two. And, um, that unit, like they'll do a bunch of damage. They'll get some wraps. They'll, they'll touch some guns and then they'll probably all die. Uh, on the same, at the same time, if your opponent, uh, you know, is canny and doesn't let you just wrap their entire gun line. Um, you're, they will, will probably be able to either, uh, reduce the second unit to, uh, low enough numbers that they don't do that much damage, or they'll, you know, use control effects like tremor shells and stuff like that, uh, to kind of make them a little bit less threatening. Um, and then at that, in that, at that point, a lot of times you have that third unit in reserve and they become sort of exponentially more valuable because your opponent runs out of things to deal with the the last unit of 20 that makes sense kind of like a, a late game sweeper that's also very true to what i find with my teams the gene stealers usually one goes in early and does what it does and dies and the other squad just isn't it gets chipped away at and mitigated and it connects eventually at like 10 guys left and it's yeah. cool it's not the sweeping finish yeah um, that the, the third squad could be so you said you keep them in reserve i'm presuming these air quotes here do you mean <laughs> yeah, no, reserves with these no we're not we're not have? uh we're not infestation okay. noting these guys no, they're <laughs> just staying in my deployment zone for a while yeah, yeah they just they built a little house and that's where they live for a bit <laughs> okay. all right just want to be clear yeah that's, that's a, fair that's, that's I, I'm, I'm using uh i'm using bad terminology there yeah they have uh they've been uh yeah uh they're just waiting for a bit. They're just they having a breather. Yeah, waiting for. They're standing season. in an L, hanging out with Swarmy. So this is more of a question that I personally struggle with as a teenager player, but uh, it's the world we live in. There's only so much line of sight blocking in the world. Now, sometimes you get lucky at a board where nothing can be seen, but that's not real life. So, um, if you have a choice where there's like a small ruiny type thing, you can hide either Swarm Lord or the Hive Guard or some Steelers, or the Malceptor, what do you do? Which one do you hide? How do you prioritize that? So uh, for the most part, it's uh, it's going to be the Hive Guard. They're so super easy to kill, and they're usually very important to the way the game works out. Um, that it's uh, they're they're usually priority number one for line of sight blocking terrain. The Maliceptor, uh, you kind of you kind of just want people to shoot at it because he's like this big dumb idiot that doesn't have a gun, uh, but does have a four plus invulnerable save. So fifty percent of the time, your opponent's anti tank guns do nothing. Um, so like that, you just leave the Maliceptor like right out in front and be like, yeah, go ahead, you know, put as many shots into this dude as you want. Yeah, every shot there is a is a win. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Swarm Lord can often protect himself with distance. So he usually if if there's a lack of line of sight blocking and your opponent doesn't have like infinite range guns, you can just like literally corner him in the back corner of the board. And then he's he, he himself can be super fast. If you need him to hive command or something in the shooting phase, you can uh, you know just go ahead and uh, metabolic overdrive him, and he can move like fifteen ish inches uh, two times potentially. So he moves you know thirty by himself if he really needs to. So a lot of times if there's not a lot of line of sight blocking uh, in your deployment zone, but there is in the center, 
I found that the gene stealers can usually make the center. Like you send one unit in um, and one unit can reasonably line of sight black for themselves in, you know, an L or something or a big building in the middle. And then the swarm, you uh, will just uh, metabolic overdrive him himself behind that piece of terrain. And you'll take, you know, sort of your the, the center of the table pretty dominatingly. And uh, as soon as you're up in the middle, a lot of, it becomes a lot easier. I found to uh, to start to to hide your army. Gotcha. Now I'm I'm gonna try to do John's job for him since he hasn't spoken since the intro. Um, John, are you are you keeping up with all of these tiered terminologies and how we're moving a hundred thousand inches? Am I am I just glossing over all that? Uh, I mean, are a little even- bit, but I I've watched Trevi play enough that I understand Terrence pretty well. So maybe we should slow it down a little bit. Um, you guys should maybe explain um, Swarmlord tricks with the double moves and why Steelers are so. Uh, and there's also some stratagems, right? Because you can like double advance, right? If I remember right, there's a lot of things that go into those threat ranges. Because I think Steelers have what pretty close to a 40 inch threat range, Kraken Steelers, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. we should. We should break yeah, that so, down, right? And then I'll just break down the rules to it, and then Trevor can talk about the applications um, and when when you would go for such plays. So basically, Tyranids have a base move value of eight, and then they have a, they can advance obviously, and they have a rule that allows them to advance and charge. Kraken allows them to advance three d six, pick the highest. On average, you'll get a five or a six. You know, sometimes you don't, but that's life. Um, Kraken has a stratagem specific to Kraken that allows it to double an advanced roll. So let's assume you roll six, it's not that hard on three dice. Uh, and now your eight inch move goes to a 14, you double that advanced roll, it goes to a 20. Swarmlord has an ability called Hodge Commander. It allows him to move a unit in the shooting phase a second time. You could do the same thing, full advance. They FAQ'd it so you can't double that advanced roll a second time with more CP, but that's still. 20 inches from the first move, 14 on the second, assuming you roll six both times, which isn't too unrealistic. So you've moved 34 inches across two phases. That ability also happens anytime in the shooting phase. So if like your hive guard or your exocrines want to blow a hole through a screen that's move blocking you, and then you want to move through that hole, that's perfectly valid. Uh, then you can declare a charge. The last two stratagems here, um, obviously Tyranids have a fight twice stratagem like most armies, so that can be very good, but the last two stratagems here are Metabolic Overdrive, where you roll a die for every unit in your army, or every model in your unit, and then on a one they take a mortal, who cares, and it gets they all get to move again in the movement phase, just as if they had moved, uh, whatever. So you can spend a CP to double your advance roll, move that 20 inches, spend another CP to Metabolic Overdrive, you keep your advance roll, you keep your doubled advance roll, now you're moving 40 inches, then you could swarm on them. So you could get up 60-inch move. You can't charge after that strat, so it's... Uh, it's very niche in its applications, but it's uh, good for getting the bonus points, move blocking, hold more, that kind of stuff. Uh, the last thing here is Overrun. Overrun is a 1CP stratagem. After your tier unit kills something in close combat, assuming there are no enemy units within 3 inches of it, so you have to be a little careful about how you position your models with respect to other enemy units, you can then, instead of consolidating, move in advance. So you can go up to 14 inches, assuming you roll at 6 on 3 dice, uh, backwards, or further deep into your opponent's deployment zone or into his lines, and then pop the fight twice strat at the end of that, and then really go nuts. That's what we mean when we say the gene stealer is going nuts and all that stuff. Uh, Trevor, do you want to talk about the applications for that kind of stuff? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was a pretty good breakdown. Um, definitely, the uh, I, I talked about it in one of my videos. Um, I did a faction overview on Tyranids, and, and I said the Tyranids sort of have, they, they kind of have, uh, absolute domination of the movement phase um and you know i i'm i know you nick as a good player probably rec- you know recognize that the movement phase is 
probably the one of if the if not the most important part of the game and Absolutely. so having this sort of complete control where you can put any of your models anywhere you want um you know almost without exception is extremely powerful and if especially if you're playing like itc and you're playing these progressive objectives uh having the ability to send like just rocket these dudes wherever you need is, is really important um some of the particular applications is uh, you know you mentioned that you can you can potentially get these models moving like 60 plus inches in a turn um so if you know for example if you get into that situation where you know the 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 terrain on your board is uneven and you're going first but your opponents like picked you know the much better terrain and there's not a lot of line sight blocking you can just rocket those gene stealers you know all the way across the table to find places to hide um if there's line of sight blocking in the middle a lot of your army can usually reach that on turn one but you know uh, some of your gene stealers will have to you know do their own thing and they can go and grab you know sort of really out of the way objectives and they can hide in little ruins gene stealers are on 25 mil bases which is interesting uh for t4 infantry and the the actual mass of the unit isn't that big if you collapse them together um so they, they can actually hide in some really interesting places that i think a lot of people don't expect them to go um it also it, it's uh, metabolic overdrive is probably one of the most important stratagems in the codex, which is weird because when you read it, it doesn't seem like that. Like it doesn't do damage. In fact, it kills your own. It took model. me a year of playing units <laughs> to figure out when to use that strategy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've definitely. You know, I started playing back in June, and I read that, and I was like, "Oh, what does this do? Like, you can't do anything after it. Like, what's the point?" And then the first time that you realize that, like you can double move your broodlord and to get the you know to get the pl the plus one to hit aura on your gene stealers or you can double move the swarm lord to get him up to hive commander somebody or you can just double move your malice scepter and then smite somebody two times you know like uh with uh, with psychic scream um you know, you can just do these crazy things where you have these crazy threat ranges and you can, you know, if you lose a back objective, you can rocket a character over there really quickly. Um, and all, you know, for the low, low price of one CP, it's pretty, it's pretty useful little tool to have in your tool bag. Absolutely. And your list doesn't do this nearly as well as like the more hoardy versions or, uh, like my list with Gene Stealer Cult, but you can also, as a tier player, very, very easily block out the entire table edge from nine inches in all directions, so your opponent can't bring in any reserves. And having a unit of like thirty guys triple moving neighborhood of fifty inches across the table just to stand all over your opponent's deployment zone, who cares if they do anything or not? Auto destroy some sense that are hanging out in reserve or sanguinary mm -hmm. guard mm -hmm. or whatever. That literally ends games before they even begin. For sure. So there's a lot of applications to that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and and definitely in those reserve centric matchups, one thing that a lot of people don't you know, going going second in those matchups is usually pretty bad. But one thing that a lot of people don't really understand is is how well Tyranids are it can explode out from a collapsed position on the table. So you know if you're keeping your models safe on turn one, um, you know from enemy shooting immediately bottom of one, you can have models sixty inches away from that position, and you can be screening your opponents turn two drops into like all the way back into their deployment zone like instantaneously i, uh, I had a guy i played at a tournament and he re reserved uh like i don't know 18 raven guards and turns or something ridiculous and they all i blocked up the table edge on turn two and then he killed some stuff and then i re-blocked it on turn three and they all died in reserve it's just it's almost <laughs> unstoppable that's glorious so i do have i do have a question for trevi but before we get to that question let's take a quick break for um a word from our sponsors this episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. 
save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. So Trevi, we've talked a lot about <clears throat> what's in your list, some of the different applications of the things that are in your list. So let, let's now go into like a more macro discussion. What's your overall strategy? Like what is this list designed to do? Like how do all the elements come together to, for your overall plan? So a lot of it, Nick mentioned before, is pure board control. It's the there are 60 gene stealers in the list, and there's a lot of points, you know, in gene stealers, but they're not, they don't. I'm not relying on them to deal a ton of damage to my opponent. Uh, what they're going to do is they're going to take the center of the board. They're going to start, you know, clipping off of my opponent's, you know, frontline models and especially their their most dangerous melee models. Um, and the hive guard and the exocrines typically will, you know, s- sort of grind my opponent to the point where uh, the neurothropes and the swarm lord will close out the game. Uh, the maliceptors in there to uh, take the center of the table. Uh, immediately after turn two, after my, you know, my opponent, uh, I don't need the stratagem so much, uh, to protect my army, either my army's too spread out to use it or my opponent's guns uh, are hopefully tied up and I won't be, you know, won't be in, in that much danger. Uh, the Maliceptor runs right into the middle. He's in the high fleet Kraken detachment. So he's a little bit faster. Um, and, uh, you know, takes center objectives and just ensures that I'm able to like score my recon, uh, every single turn by just sitting in the, on, on the center of the table. And I'm looking to grab a huge lead in points early. So turn one and two, I'm hoping to get five points each turn. Um, if we're talking about ITC, uh, five points on the primary, and then you know hopefully get most of my maneuver secondaries immediately. Uh, and then at that point, my opponent is locked into their deployment zone. They can kill my gene stealers if you know if they have the uh, the firepower to do it, and then uh, they have to slog all the way back to the center of the objective uh, to, of the table to to start getting back those objectives. All the while they're being hit by these exocrines and these hive guard, and eventually these smites from these characters, which actually do an immense amount of damage that a lot of people discount. Yeah, it's it's very much a board control. I mean, I think that's uh, a lot of players. A question I get asked a lot as a coach is how do like an army like Tyranids compete if melee, you know, you just can't rely on it like that. And my answer is almost always the same. It's that you're not playing a melee army. You're playing a board control army. No one wins 40k by killing their opponent. Largely, 40k is scored by holding objectives and accomplishing certain tasks. And those are typically movement-based. Your damage dealing to your opponent uh, by and large, buying a few secondaries and the kill point in the ITC thing um, is pretty much just a mechanism for making it safer for you to go hold objectives or get your recon points, whatever it might be. So just like a shooting army shoots you off the board, then stands on the objectives, it's winning the game by standing on the objectives. Tyranids approach you from a different angle. Tyranids stay on the objectives and get shot, but they're the ones standing on the objectives. So it's very much board control is key here. Would you agree, Trevor? Yeah, 100%. And then it helps to have also that ranged element in there, not just to kill models, but also to make it, uh, to to force your opponent to sacrifice to stand on those objectives themselves. Um, Gene stealers, you know, all by themselves won't do that. But if you have exocrines looking at all of their 
table objectives. Um, anything that, that moves out to actually grab those is going to get blown off the table. And your score lead is just going to continue, you know, continue to, to increase and increase. You, eventually, your whole army is going to die. And uh, it, it, like by turn four, it looks like you're like drastically losing the game. But the scoreboard should have you like so far up that you, your opponent can't really come back. Yeah, it is not uncommon for me to finish tiered games with like sub 10 models out of my 150 with a <laughs> 35 to 25 point score in my favor. Yeah, I've I've won games in ITC with no models on the table with Tyranids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, a couple more questions I want to ask before we move on to part two and talk about your specific matchups. And believe me, Tyranids change their strategy in the blink of an eye. And that's what happens when you're such a fast army. So that's a really going to be a really good discussion. Um, do you think your army works in other formats such as WTC or Nova, if you're familiar with those? Would you change anything for that? So I think it probably works in Nova. Um, I think there would be a couple tweaks. Usually the board control isn't quite as powerful because you have to hold an objective at the start of your turn. So you're kind of relying on a little bit more resilience. Um, and I think that's a format in which, uh, you know, sort of a Gantt carpet list would probably do a little bit better. Um, but the fact that you have models like the Maliceptor, who's hard to kill, and these big Exocrines who can sit in the back and, and hold objectives pretty reliably uh, means that I think it, it's it's competitive. I don't think it's uh, optimized, but I, I'm, sh- I'm sure you can play it. Um, WTC uh, is a great question, and um, I have no idea how that format goes. So, you know. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Well, I'll speak for you since I know Tyranids pretty well, and I've played that format a million times. Uh, basically, there's three components there's Eternal War, which is objectives, and you either hold them progressively throughout the game, uh, much like ITC, you just walk up to objective and squirt, or you hold the objectives at the end of the game, depending on which mission you're playing. There's also a Maelstrom component, which is largely based on board control. You get points for holding certain objectives and tyrants are phenomenal at that and then there's a kill point component uh, up to a maximum of six so if you like you get one point for every unit you kill you compare that to your opponent's total at the end you can get them by six points there um so i think your army does really well there i'm not sure i would change too much just because you maelstrom is such a large component of the mission as is eternal war and your army is fantastic at both of those since you can just be on every objective all at once cards like domination um which are like five or six point swings or supremacy things like that hold objective three go ahead you just move some stealers and you're holding objective three it's uh it's really strong in that format so yeah i I will say eternal war just sort of vanilla eternal war if as long as you are playing you know whichever the advantage player um in whatever your eternal war mission is uh it's very difficult to lose with tyranids for sure yeah. Uh, and then my final question, uh, unless John has any more you'd like to add after I'm done, is basically, were there other units you've considered or kind of mop, bobbled around on? Um, things like Old One-Eye, I know, are popular in Tyranid builds like this, because he's a character and can get launched by Swarmlord into cool places. Uh, I have toyed with Warriors to very depressing results, but hopefully you've had some more success. Anything like that? Um, yeah, so I did mention uh, that a, a previous iteration of this list swapped the Maliceptor for another Exocrine. That, I think, is one change that um, could be made to it. And uh, I'm not 100% sold on the Maliceptor. I'm definitely still playtesting with it. I think it's an, a, a much more interesting include than just another Exocrine. So uh, that's why we're talking about it now. Um, but other than that, unfortunately, the points are a little tight for models like Old One-Eye. He's very difficult to squeeze into lists. Uh, because he is so expensive, you do pay for you know that character protection. Yeah, for sure. he's basically instead of your third stealer unit to wait in the back, you you have an old one. Right? Yeah, you door. you swap a yeah. arrow throw for for ONE. Yeah. Um, the um, otherwise, I have played with uh, with warriors. I think mostly to the same extent. 
uh, to, to, to the same degree, they're okay, but they're, I've never really experienced them as being any more than okay. They do some damage, but they're a little short-ranged for the most part. I'm really glad you got them to okay. I mean, Phantom Cannons are real, are just good. They're just a good profile it's, it's to just have. A good gun, yeah. And in, especially in a Kronos detachment, when you have a Tyranid Prime, so they explode on fives all the time. Uh, having venom cannons that explode on fives and double shoot is like su- can can be super swingy if you roll good, but you do have to roll good and uh, not get that unit blown up, which it happens a lot. Um, another unit that I like to take with the Cronus detachment is a Tyrannocyte, just for the fact that it stops your opponent from being able to alpha out any of your big hitters. Um, additionally, if so you put a you put a big monster in there or something. Yeah, so either the Hive Guard or the Exocrines. Uh, a lot of times, if your opponent is attacking, they can force you into position, a position where your short range kind of hurts you a lot. Uh, because uh, Tyranids almost across the board don't really have any ranges above 36 inches. And if you're being hit by, you know, Whirlwinds and Thunderfire Cannons from the other side table edge, it's hard to, you know, fight back to that. Uh, but a Tyrannocyte, if you're able to take the center of the board, lets you drop Hive Guard into like bu- uh, buildings in the center. Uh, it lets you drop Exocrines around the side of uh, Line of Sight blocking terrain, and then you can use the strat to count them as stationary even though they disembarked that turn um you know all sorts of fun stuff like that uh i i have played the tyrannocyte in the past i do like it a lot as just a you know just to have another uh you know piece of tech that is one thing that i would have included but i, I ended up having to drop it to fit everything into the list now do you find it's worth it even though those games there's gonna be a lot of games where you don't care to put something in tyrannocyte and you're like why are you here yeah, so he also, I mean, it's like it's like the world's biggest ripper swarm sometimes. Like, he just sits in your opponent's deployment zone and scores behind enemy lines. And he's they're not that easy to kill. They have 10 wounds. Um, yeah, no, it's like shooting a drop pod. You're yeah. never excited about shooting a drop pod. Right, exactly. Um, but the difference between it and a drop pod is that it flies, so you can't, you know, just touch it and, and lock it in melee. But also, it has five heavy bolters on it. So sometimes it just, like, kills some people. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's uh, true. And it's, you know, it's sometimes nice to just have a thing that your opponent kind of has to think about in the back of their mind. And if they don't, like, I don't know, maybe it pops a wound off a character. And, you know, that that can uh, be very important. Or maybe it just goes and, you know, makes a charge and, and starts tying up their artillery in the back if they aren't thinking about it. It's it's because it's not actually a drop pod and it's actually a monster. It's, you know, a good piece to have for the most part. Yeah, it's a decent profile for like 75 points or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, it's not for bad. sure. That's, that's interesting. That's one of the units I've kind of stopped looking at because I just I don't like paying for that kind of stuff. But it does have a good utility aside from being a drop pod, which I forgot about. Yeah, yeah. Being able to put something anywhere on the table at some point is almost always useful. Yeah. Um, I told you that was my last question, but I lied. Uh, I, I know. Um, what kind of show are you guys running? Oh this is because John hasn't been talking. <laughs> You're not keeping me on track here. <laughs> um, I've been talking. You, you've said one thing when I called you out on it. All right, all right, fine. <laughs> Which um, is exactly what's happening right now, too. Let's point that out. <laughs> yeah. um, no, uh, because you viewers want to know what kind of do, do you often have a preferred attacker defender? Is there a role you'd like to play in the game in an ITC format? And then also, are there go-to secondaries? You mentioned recon earlier, but anything else you like always take? Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, to the first part of the question, attacker defender, uh, I defender is very powerful and there are some particular matchups where I would like to be the defender, but almost a hundred percent, this list is so aggressive. I think it wants to attack almost every time. If you have the opportunity. Um, yeah, I find the same thing with my teammates. Like I can play either role fine because defender has such value, but getting into the middle of the table turn one is is something to be said for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, behind for uh, in terms of secondaries, I actually end up 
taking butcher's bill a lot, um, a lot more than I would expect. Uh, that does depend on the list that your opponent's playing, but um, gene stealers are really good at killing things that you get butcher's bill off of, if that makes sense. So your opponent's got, you know, scout squads or eliminators, or, you know, you've got a a couple Imperial guardsmen that are sitting out in the middle of nowhere. And it's some, you sometimes, you know, you don't want to dedicate attacks to killing those things, but gene stealers can actually just like kill two things, get your butcher's bill and then overrun and double fight and wrap something. Right. And, uh, so I actually find that the list is pretty good at killing a a high volume of units, uh, more than I would expect. Otherwise, you can general, you can pick secondaries uh, tailored to your opponent's list. You know, you, you can usually look at you know gangbusters and and big game hunter and things like that. Yeah, I was gonna say I think Butcher's Bill is one that people don't take as much as they should. If you think about a game of forty k, you're already incentivized to kill multiple units turn because kill more is a concept. So why not just double down on that reward? Like people are always worried, like what if I only kill one unit? You know, it sucks. But well, if you also only kill one unit turn against, unless you're playing like knights or custodians that don't really have many units. Like you're probably getting annihilated anyway because they've gotten kill more every single round on you. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of interesting about that is you can manage that. And a lot of people don't really think about how well you can manage that. So yeah, maybe you only kill one thing on turn one, but you also knock another unit down to two guys and you know you can just pick them up at your leisure to get your butcher's bill, right? Because it's 40k. Stuff <laughs> <laughs> right. dies, right? Um <laughs> And so, and you can also set up for future turns butcher bills, right? You can just like, you know, maybe turn one, you know that you're neither of you is going to get kill more. You can only kill one thing, and then you just pepper like three units. You're just like, I'm going to put some damage on all these, so later I, they're easier to me to take out, right? Um, for sure, top players very often will, like, if they have one man units running around, they will try to suicide them so they don't get killed in the wrong turn. Uh, for the wrong amount of points or like they will often soften squads up like guardsmen or scouts bring them down to just a couple guys and then stop shooting them just preserve those kills for future turns that's there's a game within a game there to be sure yeah and one thing that if you're playing an aggressive melee list like this one uh has the potential to be one thing that you should be aware of is that you can skill or butcher's bill in your opponent's turn so if you're able to get in on you know say you have models in melee with two characters for example or you know you you, you know you have some wraps on some units and you're able to pick those both up in your opponent's fight phase you will score butcher's bill that turn and then you're free to go do other stuff and score it again on your back on your turn now i got a question can you score it on your opponent's turn and your turn or is it once per round it's, it's once per turn. At the end of the turn, yep. If you've destroyed two units. So for score. combat armies that are wrapping stuff in close combat, it's just very achievable to do multiple in one battle round. Right. I've never seen that happen, but that is really gross. Yeah, it <laughs> it, it doesn't happen every game, but it does happen. My junior cult literally did that every game. <laughs> there you go. Um, awesome. Well, John, do you have any other questions for Mr. Trevi here? I don't. I don't. So let's let's uh, what I, what I'm really looking forward to is our discussion on matchups because like a lot of good lists, this list is very flexible on how it plays. Um, and so, and then when you have, like we talked about earlier, all the movement tricks and all the options, I think different matchups are going to tease out sort of different aspects of the list. So that'll be an interesting discussion for sure. And for all of you patrons, you can just jump on over to episode two and listen to that now. And if you're not a patron, you might want to consider checking it out where we have really cool in-depth discussions that go deep into matchups and uh, like, you know, individual psychic powers and relics and, you know, stratagems that you save or, or, or that you prioritize. It's, it's a really good way to get really into the details of playing the list if for a specific situation. So it's a little bit different discussion than we have in episode one. Episode one, we sort of talk about the overall strategy, what's in the list and why it's in it. In episode two, we talk about 
okay, how do you use this in this situation? And it and it makes for some interesting conversations. So again, if you haven't signed up for our Patreon, uh, I would encourage you to consider it at $6. I think there's like something like 44 or 45 hours of material there. So you can kind of justify it as, well, I got a lot of material to listen to for my six bucks. And then you can certainly leave after a month. Um, but we sure would appreciate if you guys gave it a shot. Otherwise, we hope you all have a great time and we'll catch you on episode two. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com, where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. AOW40K.